Hey guys, welcome to Prometheus Decoded. I wanted to tell you a bit about why we decided to create this pod. Prometheus Decoded is a place to uncover the stories behind business leaders who have stepped up to shape the future of business. They are change agents, innovators, and visionaries. On Prometheus Decoded, you'll hear from inspirational investors who share professional and personal stories about navigating the financial and business world with lessons and best practices to help you drive transformational change. We started Prometheus Studios to help break down big ideas into stories everyone can understand. The goal is better access to information and education in all areas of business and technology. We want people to learn about these experts and what makes them tick how they got to where they are, and what lessons they have learned along the way, not only becoming better business leaders, but also better humans, creating a more positive impact in the world around them. I'm Ryan Pallotta, and this is Prometheus Decoded. Today, we wanted to have a conversation about all things blockchain. I'm so excited to talk to legendary financial journalist Herb Greenberg, a contributor to The Wall Street Journal, TheStreet.com, CNBC, and now Empire Financial Research. Herb has the ability to create commentary on the market that is insightful while never being afraid to dig deeper. A true hero to the markets, his short reports and investigative journalism have uncovered massive financial frauds, helping shareholders and the SEC get justice. With him, we have David Namdar, an early blockchain crypto advocate and investor. David is co-founder of NFT.com and Coral DeFi. David's investment expertise in decentralized currencies is incredible, and I am excited and lucky to have him with us. I also wanted to hear the thoughts from our resident crypto nerd, Terry Beeman, who, as a new investor, has submersed himself in the crypto world. We've brought these three together to explore some divergent thoughts on the possible future of blockchain and crypto. So now, let's get into it. Thank you guys for jumping on this conversation with us today. I was really excited to talk to you and uh, thought you guys are the best people to possibly talk about uh, these kind of ideas with. Uh, I was really inspired by your work, David, and Herb, I love you know your commentary on the industry and all the work that you've done in your amazing career. So I really wanted to kind of bring you guys together and Terry as well, who as a young investor in crypto and NFTs has some really interesting visions and insight for where he sees this technology going. And first off, I just kind of wanted to hear from you individually. If there was a point back in your life where you realized, like, what was that tipping point where you realized that this is something that you want to spend your time in, that you felt and got excited about this idea of crypto or blockchain or whatever it was, that you thought that this was going to be the single greatest technology achievement moving forward that was going to change the world and you needed to dedicate your life to that, um, David. Was there a point in time where that kind of happened for you? Um, you know, I, I guess it's just been a kind of a series of points in time that I attributed to. And uh, I came from the hedge fund world. And when I was at Millennium um, and at UBS prior to that, I used to cover all the Asian markets initially and then almost all the markets globally. And I used to just on a daily basis take in so many inputs on all these random data points and things that were happening within different sectors and different markets and, you know, different economic indices. And then, you know, and I was, as I learned more and more about, you know, monetary policy and economic policies across different countries and got more and more interested in technology as, as a sector, mm-hmm. um, when I found out about Bitcoin and the idea of a digital currency born from the Internet, right, that had a mathematical supply and all these other kind of technologically driven properties, it just became more and more appealing. And and then over time, as I got deeper and deeper into it, you know, and just saw kind of the, the people that were getting involved and the technologists and kind of people that were really looking to disrupt all of these different areas of uh, tr- the traditional world and realizing that, you know, some of them were just putting out these completely insane ideas or what seemed like it. And then as, you know, in the last couple of cycles, as more and more of those ideas came to fruition, right, it's just kind of made me more and more confident as I now spend what has been the majority of my career and what seemingly feels like my entire life within the cryptocurrency space. What seemed insane about that at the time? And do you remember where you were in life wherein that started happening? So some of the, you know, I I found out about it as early as 2011. And even then I kind of didn't seem like something that was investable at the time. And it really wasn't right when Bitcoin, uh, for anybody right now, and I try to 
kind of reframe it to people who think, oh, I could have bought back then or I knew or someone told me about it. You know, it was hard. It wasn't that investable. Very few people actually invested significant sums of money into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in the earliest days. Um, you know, the Winklevoss twins, to their credit, were some of the boldest and smartest in the way they acquired uh, their Bitcoin holdings. Mm -hmm. Barry Silver from Digital Currency mm -hmm. Group is another one. Um, Roger Ver. Brock Pierce, a handful of kind of the people that are now the pioneers and considered the pioneers of the industry. And so I used to go to Bitcoin meetups in kind of hidden rooms and office buildings in New York of mm -hmm. 10, 20, 30 people where it was five or 10 technologists and then a couple of shady characters that came from the gambling <laughs> world or who knows what world, really all just trying to figure out and play around with what this technology could be. And then as more and more kind of the first wave of entrepreneurs got in the space, really, like I remember there were entrepreneurs and investors back then, VCs who put together lists of a hundred different uh, industries that Bitcoin and digital currencies may disrupt, right? In a hundred different ways, plus mm -hmm. that that might happen. And none of them happened in 2012, 13, 14, 15. And then in the next cycle, 15, 16, 17, 20 or 30 of them happened. And now in this latest cycle, another 20 or 30 happened. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, we're seeing the, innovation uh, and the experimentation keeps kind of proliferating and more and more people are getting drawn into the space and actually we're attracting better quality entrepreneurs and technologists to actually tackle some of these ideas. That's really interesting. And it seems like the, the, you couldn't even easily, there's no Coinbase, you couldn't just go and invest that easily into any of these assets. Right. And and it's also kind of people who have been uh, getting their hands dirty, taking their hits along the way, right? I mean, I've taken hits, I've lost money on almost every cryptocurrency exchange hack that happened up until the last couple of years ago. And that's because there were only a handful of places where people uh, could trade. And even then, you know, I tell people, despite that, it still has been a net positive being involved in the space by far. Most of the other uh, participants in the crypto space would say the same thing. Herb, I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of a similar question, but do you remember what you felt when you saw this kind of shift and ideating of people starting to discuss this back in 2011, 2012? I, you must have, and what, yeah, were your, what were your initial thoughts on it? Because it seems like- I had no idea what they were talking about. And <laughs> um, I think that, uh, that um, the first time, it was very interesting at some point way back there, Barry Silbert invited me to moderate a, panel on uh, at an alt investment conference on mm -hmm. cryptocurrency. And I said, Barry, I have no idea what we're really talking about. So how can I moderate? He says, exactly. So that's why I want you to be there. And I go to this, you know, this hotel up in Laguna, wherever it was. And it was one of those sort of what David was describing. It was a, you know, it's just a small group of people um, who have, uh, you know, a small group of people who, uh, you know, what, a room of 30 people? maybe 40 people. And that was it. And I remember, uh, you know, wondering about it, but not knowing much and walking away with Barry saying to me, you know, he had some comment, which then I guess is not the comment of today. But his point was, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're talking Bitcoin or whatever you're talking. It's really about the blockchain. And I walked away thinking, okay, this blockchain mm -hmm. is going to be big. That's the thing to focus on. But as luck would have it or not have it, because it didn't have it, um, I get busy doing other things. And the last thing I had to do was to spend my time looking at this because, you know, when you're doing what I do for a living, it's just hard to give this kind of focus I felt it deserved. And I wasn't going to suddenly, you know, pivot my career, which at that point, mm -hmm. I think was doing short research into looking at, you know, at this. So I've been a spectator, like I think, you know, a certain percentage of people out there and um, continue to be one pretty much. Well, that's why I thought you'd be the best person to have on here is because you're a spectator who <laughs> doesn't know that as much about it. So it's, uh, I love your philosophy around that. Sure. And I have to say one other thing. I just want to say one other thing. And that is the one thing I've learned, though, and that concerns me about people like me at times is we're, we've missed things because they've moved along. We haven't understood it. And voila, you've got the Internet. And uh, mm -hmm. so you know that you don't want to just you know write something off, but it, by the same token, you know, I know what I what I know and what I don't know, and I try to stick with things I know. So it also probably leaves you open to ideas and to listening to things and writing about them in an interesting and thoughtful way or sharing other people's ideas as well, kind of shifting through the noise. Um, Terry, one thing that I was really fascinated by yourself was that you kind of represent this new shift 
of young people getting really interested and passionate about something. Like I've never before uh, seen anything like this where people's eyes light up when they talk about a technology. You know, so it's, it's almost like the beginning days of the internet. You know, when we, when we talk to hedge fund managers all day, none of them get as excited about people that talk about crypto or blockchain or anything like that, especially not young people. Um, you know, we had a whole dinner where you explained to Mike all the little details and nuances with crypto and blockchain, and he was kind of blown away. Uh, what was it in your life and your career that got you fascinated by this? Honestly, my interest in crypto kind of came by circumstance. I was touring with a musician in 2019, and um, COVID stopped my entire career and well-being. And so I kind of had to find other ways to make ends meet. And, um, you know, I went through a year of really, you know, spotty employment. And then I kind of thought to myself, well, maybe you should try to, you know, invest or trade. And um, I hopped on this Discord called uh, Atlas Trading. And um, it's something I kind of use more as a scanner these days. But that's sort of what got my interest in it. And I, I started learning about all of these different assets from there. So it, yeah, it was really, it was really more circumstance that got me into it. I, I mean, I was aware of Bitcoin in, you know, 2010, 2011, where it was between, you know, a cent and five cents. My friends were using it to buy illicit substances off of the Silk Road. And, um, you know, that's really all I thought of it back then. I thought this was, you know, like the some of the narrative around Bitcoin. It's like, oh, it's for criminals and it's for doing illicit trades because that was really the only thing that you could do with it back then. But what really um, got me inspired was the perspective of how far things have come since then, right? We've come from ascent and no real uh, applications to having a, a nation state adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, I, I thought that that was really, really inspiring. And then seeing the applications and seeing how people are actually building um, technology on this technology, how how the world is actually you know possible to, to function on this technology and how it can actually represent a, a complete paradigm shift got me, uh, got me really excited. It gets me excited to this day. And your focus tended to ended up becoming a little bit more into some of the NFT things that you start buying and collecting. And is um, there something that drew you to that? Yeah. So one that really got me realizing that this was a space that has a lot of value um, is a digital collectibles project. I, I saw this project acquiring licensed property from Disney and Marvel and DC and, you know, releasing these assets with blockchain technology. And that just, you know, made a light bulb go off in my head. I'm like, wow, this is like really something that has legitimate business value. Like these big businesses are looking to build in this space. Like there's got to be something more here. Well, interesting. David, well, when is there a specific area of this space that you get excited about or the future in which you would apply this technology personally or in how you see others applying it that you think makes the most sense aside from obviously investing in altcoins and Bitcoin, but I guess, like you said, the underlying blockchain technology. I, I guess so kind of what I've always done is just sought out things that people get excited about, right? And I try to, if I were to codify that as an investment strategy, I think that would serve me and serve any of us well going forward. And, you know, Herb, to, you know, what you were saying about like sticking with what you know, and I think that's a tried and true strategy. And I think it's, the, the one thing that I try to do and help people with is just help kind of understand how people think and where they come from and what backgrounds they have and, you know, how, what complexes they have around money uh, that's occurred over their lifetime and from their parents even. And then to try to just help open their mind and plant seeds to kind of help excite them you know, and pique their interest about what's possible in the crypto space. And especially, you know, one of the starting points for me is not to tell people, right, what to invest in. And I, I have, I still get pinged a dozen times a day with people asking me, what, you know, what should they buy Bitcoin? What other altcoins should they buy? What are they, what NFTs should they buy now? And and really, you know, as a starting point, I stop them completely and I try to understand how they think about money, what they've been, what their experience investing in so far, and then to try to encourage them and say, all right, well, you come from this, you come from a real estate background, you come from an art background. Why don't you try to learn about what other people are doing that have the same background and follow some of the projects that you already kind of know something about and see if it makes sense to you. See if it, it all of a sudden clicks and it says, oh, wow, this is a better way to do these real estate transactions that we've already been doing. I want to start investing in stuff like this, right? Um, or if you're an artist who's kind of been struggling to sell your 
your art, but you have a great community and interaction with your community. And one of the problems is that they're all over the world and they're not coming to your, you know, the art gallery where you're exhibiting. All of a sudden, by engaging with the community and some artists have been able to set up their own uh, Discord channels and kind of have entire monetize their following in a way that they never dreamed possible through issuing NFT collections and certain things there. So to go back to answer your question, Ryan, like, Again, I'm always seeking out what people are excited about. And now even looking ahead at next year and you know the years to come, I think the things that really people are incredibly excited about right now are around some of the innovation of NFTs, not just these like generated collections, but kind of what, what follows after that. Um, you, you said something about how kind of excited people are getting with, with a lot of these things. And like, you know, there was an, uh, an event in New York, uh, NFT NYC, and then there was a follow-on even around Art Basel in Miami. At both of those, the collections of people that had invested together in NFTs and in DAOs, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations, and meeting yeah. up in person for the first time, right? Or for, you know, just additional meetups. It's just kind of like a level of excitement that I hadn't seen before in anything or any area of people investing together. And so that's really an important thing. And then looking ahead now with the metaverse becoming a bigger and bigger theme, you know, I think that if we look back to what happened with uh, Niantic and Pokemon Go and what a global mm-hmm. and cultural phenomenon that was, I see many more things happening like that with this kind of convergence of metaverses, DAOs and NFTs uh, in the years to come. You know, it's interesting. I, I just have to say something, and, and this isn't yeah. necessarily for this because it's it's quasi-personal. My son-in-law has a business that's a uh, collectibles, uh, a resin collectibles business. He's got collectors from all over the world, really fascinating stuff. There's a, there's a market for this, and it's a, it's a mm-hmm. big market. But what's interesting is people come to him trying to get him to NFT, and he refuses to do it because he feels that it would, you know, the way he, where he's, his head is at now, and they come back to him over and over, and his head is, you know, I'm afraid of it impacting my end market. His end market is somewhat of an alt end market. And, um, and so there's that as well. You know, he struggles with that, I think, uh, trying to figure that out. What do you think has, like both uh, Herb and David, what do you think has kind of created this phenomenon of like this excitement that's almost parallel to, like you mentioned, the Pokemon Go and some of these collectible type things, but it's bigger than that almost. And it's created like these communities, it's created people to think about the internet in different ways. You know, you've got Jack of Twitter saying that this is the greatest thing that he's ever been going to work on in his entire life. Uh, what do you think it is about that that is making people this diehard about it? Well, I mean, how do you, when you start seeing some of the people who are deeply involved in this, you can't sit, sit there and just say they don't know what they're talking about or they're just hopping on a fad or they're wrapping on a trend, what is it they know that I don't know? Or that, you know, mm. I think that's what some people say and other people just say, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me. So I think what mm-hmm. they see, what they see is something people like me don't fully understand. But again, as I said earlier, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not going to be a huge, enormous thing. So they obviously have seen the opportunity. Plus you've also seen, well, they see what they think is the opportunity. You've also seen people making a lot of money with it. I mean, I saw yeah. there's a there, there's a guy who approached me three months ago, four months ago, five months ago to look at his 12 year old daughter's artwork, said, you know, hey, you know, Herb, can you help get the word out, get the word out? And my daughter was an art student. So, I, you know, I, I looked at it, but I couldn't really give encouragement because I know how hard it is, how hard, I, how hard art is, how it's a tough career. Long story short, the other day, my daughter sends me something. Isn't that the 12 year old girl? You know, she's made a million and a half dollars off her NFT and uh, <laughs> NFT in her art, you know, for, and so that's the issue with this. People are making money, but what are they? What do you own? And they, we can't, this is what's interesting. You guys will appreciate this. We're sitting there, all of us non, uh, non um, digital people, right? Non, non crypto people, I should say. People who know, people who are your age, people who are engaged, but maybe more in the arts say, okay, but what is it really? What do you really own? What does it really mean? What happens to it? You know, what, and and so there's, and I'm sure, David, I'm sure you have heard that from other people who still wonder, Mm -hmm. well, okay, I have a piece of art here, but what's the difference? I mean, my original is what people want. And I think that Mm -hmm. transition since I'm seeing it in my own family, I'm sure that transition is a difficult transition for many to make. Yeah, David, do you mind like, do you mind like res- responding to that? Like, what would you, if you were to explain it to a, my mother who's never heard about this stuff before, 
what is it? Like, how could you articulate that as to what it is that makes it special? Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, well, there's too many directions to take that. But even just to, to answer it, like when it comes to art, right? And I'm, I'm kind of really urging caution with a lot of people. Last night, I had a friend of mine call me up, and this happens more often than you can imagine, asking me, begging me to tell him how he can invest a million dollars into NFTs today. Everyone around him is making money in <laughs> NFTs, and he wants to know. And I couldn't, like, urge him more caution Right. And I told him I'd send him a couple of NFT focused investment funds. I'll send him a couple of articles. I'll send him, you know, introduce him to a couple of people who can educate him on the space and really telling him before clicking buy and purchasing a single thing, he needs to do a lot more work. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's literally, it's, you know, the kind of one of the riskiest forms of gambling, just throwing money at something he doesn't understand. Now, one of the things I would say, really, if you look at the art world, right, like the piece of art behind me and, you know, in any of our houses and behind Terry, that most art, if not almost all art, is fundamentally worthless. And what I mean by that is you buy a piece of art, whether whatever price you paid, 1K, 10K, 100K, $100 million, and then it sits on your wall. It has value because you put a number on it and you bought it and acquired it for that amount of dollars that you exchanged for it. Then what happens is it sits on your wall. After a period of time, you get sick of the art or you move to a different location, and then you either put it in storage or you give it to your sibling or you give it to someone else. Now, in your mind, you paid X amount for it. It's still worth X amount. You tell that person that. But most likely, that art will never be sold again. So the art, hopefully, was something you enjoyed and it didn't just sit in storage, but it doesn't actually have any resale value. Now, some fraction, some tiny percentage of it, 1%, maximum 10% of art can be resold or can even appreciate in value. And that's because of some rarity and some uniqueness and some kind of like catching the a certain moment in time of a special kind of uh, artistic uh, expression. And so that's what sort of happened in the NFT world so far, that some tiny fraction of these NFTs will have accrued value and risen in value because the majority of crypto participants and NFT collectors around the world have kind of decided or you know, weighed in and said that these things are unique and special and the originals and these have value. Now, but how? Plenty people, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. You know, plenty of people bring up this idea. Okay, but it's just a JPEG or it's something you can click and copy and paste. <laughs> if someone has a, a Van Gogh or a Picasso on their wall, I can take a picture of it and make a, uh, a print of it and, you know, put a poster on my wall of the same thing, right? I can hire somebody. Uh, when I lived in Hong Kong across the border in Shenzhen, they had some of the best fake artists in the world that could take any piece of art and make it for a couple hundred dollars to look like perfection. Now, the point is, you can do that, but that's not the real art. They also had the, it was kind of the fake goods capital of the world. You could buy fake watches and bags and everything else. Mm -hmm. Now, the point was, some of them were even using the same materials from, you know, Louis Vuitton. They would steal the materials from the factories in China and use those to reproduce the closest thing yeah. to real fakes. So the point is, even despite there being some copyability and some ability to kind of create fakes of it, there still is value to the originals from certain participants that agree on that. I'm sure this makes you cringe every time you hear it, but people will ask the question. And again, you guys are deep into it. So to you, it's second nature, you're smug, you know it. What about everybody else who says, but hey, isn't this just a collectibles market? It's just a digital collectibles market. And you guys are, you know, are creating basically the, uh, the, what do they used to call it? The Franklin Mint? Aren't you just creating a demand for this? Uh, like any other collectible out there? Uh, baseball cards? Well, you name it. NFTs are just another level of that created. And the people who are hopping in, who like the guy who said to you, I, I have a million dollars I want to put into it. He's got FOMO, obviously, because he doesn't want to be left behind. Mm. So you guys <laughs> are at the, you know, you guys are early. But a lot of people out there say, well, but remember Beanie Babies? And I know this isn't the same. I, I get it. I get it. And I'm David, you're old enough to have had Beanie Babies when you were a kid because I just know you did. But the fact <laughs> is, I know this is, I know this is different. I get it 100%. But I also think there's a similarity in any collectible. So how am I wrong in thinking this is just like any other collectible? Yeah. Look, I think it's really important to actually acknowledge and learn from all the different cycles and things that have happened in the past. One of the important things that's really happened and that's happening today and it's been happening for the last five, 10 years 
as I, you know, like I alluded to before, in all these different industries, people are trying to disrupt and come up with ways that, you know, moving towards a decentralized world is going to be a better version of what the kind of existing status quo of that industry looks like. The difference is if we go back 20 years to when the internet first came about, an internet 1.0, there, we had, as we went from tens of millions of users to hundreds of millions, and then an internet 2.0 to billions of users of the internet, what happened was all of these different industries were disrupted at different times. Some were disrupted more in the first wave and some more in the second wave. So, you know, telecoms and internet or banking and, you know, certain industries were affected more than others earlier on and some real estate, restaurants, others later on. Now, what's been happening in this last 10 years, really, and with all the, in the different cycles than the kind of blockchain cryptocurrency spaces, we and this industry has benefited from having the internet develop to the point it was. So what they got to do is they got to study how things played out in the rollout of the internet and how different industries were disrupted. They got to study and go back because this information was available for the first time to people all over the world. The information on the origins of all of these industries of why certain things work the way they did. So they got to really deconstruct, and this is still playing out today, to say, why does this exist the way it is? Why do the why does equity and credit settlement work the way it does? If we were to go back to kind of the origins of the financial system, why do the derivative markets work the way they do? Why does the art market work the way it does and authentication and you know all of these other things? And so, you know, that's been something that I think didn't exist in the first couple waves of the internet, exists today, which makes me really excited about kind of this wave of innovation that's happening going forward because they're really, it's not coming from a place of just throwing things at the wall. It's coming from a place of often like really studying the, the history and origins of these systems and trying to come up with better ways that all this can work. So now to go back to the Beanie Baby thing, that's a widely known case study that, you know, you have hundreds of millions of people, if not more, that know about it and that even that live through it. And so, now, some of that wisdom still exists. Now, in every market cycle, there's always you know, hype and speculation and exuberance and all that, but there's also innovation that happens. And so you know, when you look at certain NFT projects, like with CryptoPunks and you know, Board Ape Yacht Club, where people are actually are actively engaging in these communities. So it's not just you own the thing, but you don't just own this collectible and have it sit there, right? That now, it, for one, it confers some value. If you were to own one of the most difficult to acquire Beanie Babies in the last cycle, and you were able to put that on your Twitter and show off to a billion people around the world that you own that, all of a sudden, you're conveying something that you might own something that all of these other celebrities and other influencers don't own. So all of a sudden, you're conveying that you actually have some sophistication ability to acquire special things that mm -hmm. other people don't. And as the world becomes more kind of globally connected and this kind of everybody becomes a micro influencer and can interact with communities of people all over the world that matters yeah so, it's interesting i think i think like you said the idea of like a baseball card like the fact that you had like ken griffey's rookie card showed you had the foresight to collect that card and hold on to it long enough keep it in good enough condition that you're able to resell it one day because it has value because of his career an nft i guess represents the same type of uh same type of idea it holds value because someone else out there believes that you were smart enough for buying it at a certain time at a certain price. Is there a different way of looking at that technology? And maybe like you said, this is the first iteration of that. Like this is the first version that we're seeing of how people are using these things and looking at these things. Like the like you said, internet through like one first two and now three. Is there something in the future that you think that is the is how you'll see this evolve? Like how do you see this evolving next where Maybe it's a better use of it where it's people aren't looking at it as just a collectibles market that's pretty much a gamble on buying something that's collectible. But is there a better use case for this where it's like now you have a, a way of getting showing true ownership on something? Yeah, exactly. And that, that's what I get excited about thinking ahead. It's, you know, I, I came up with this line earlier this year that cryptocurrencies can and may disrupt everything we do with money and NFTs may disrupt everything else. So what I mean by that is everything we do with money, trading, investing, lending, borrowing, uh, derivatives, right? Mm -hmm. Already people are coming up with within the initial cryptocurrencies that have been kind of presented and now also with all the new products and ideas that are coming out in the DeFi, decentralized finance world, you know, we're seeing a lot of innovation happen. Now in the NFT space, the earliest kind of NFT collectibles and digital art have been what's caught the mainstream attention. But we're also seeing this first wave of innovation around intellectual property for 
you know, music royalties and other films and other kind of content. And then, you know, even for, you know, for my hedge fund, for example, and for funds I've been involved with or invested in, I've talked to people about the idea that, you know, you should have an NFT that represents your GP or your LP stakes in certain funds. So uh, also for your university degrees or for tickets for events that, you know, you're going to and also after you But there's no value in those, but there's no value in your, in your degrees and things like that. You're just doing an NFT to what? Well, so that, that's all that. So there's, there's no value and there is value. The NFTs can confer value, right? So what is a university degree? It confers that you made it through a difficult process or if you passed your, you know, you went through a CFA program or other programs, right? But why it would you digitally, why, but, right, but why, why would you need to confer value when that value is already implied by having the certificate? So in other words, what is the NFT doing other than digitally creating a, what, a digital token of it, something that you could digitally produce anyway and keep in safekeeping. That's where I wonder if you, if you sort of, if, it, if that crosses at one, one level too far. One of the really important things that it does is it provides authenticity and this ability of like trust between people. Right now today, if I had to guess, right, and I, we haven't heard anything in the news recently about this, you know, there's always things that come out and we find out that some certain Fortune 1000 executives lied about their university degree. Right. And it hasn't come out in a while. But if I was willing to bet, you know, that there are at least a dozen people still at, you know, large companies that have lied about their university degrees. Mm. Right? There's a, there's a famous story. Yeah. yeah, there's a famous story of David Geffen. He even talks about this in his documentary where he went in early to the mailroom every day because you he, he, he weren't allowed to, at the time to get a job at, I think, CAA it was without a UCLA or university degree. And he had wrote on his resume that he had a UCLA degree. He went in early for months opening all the mail to make sure that when they sent the letter saying he never went here, he got it first and replaced it with a forged version of that. I don't even know where my diploma is because I just never cared. So if I had to prove to somebody that I did go to school, there'd be, it'd be tricky for me to do it. I'd probably have to, I don't even know where I'd begin. So I do see the idea of being able to prove authenticity in whether it's a deep title to a car, title to a house, um, transferring titles would become much easier. If I had to transfer property of my house, it'd be probably happen instantaneously and showing, you know, ownership of that I went through school through like something that I have on my Apple iCloud, I'd be able to. But why it's important, right? And the differentiator is that it's decentralized, right? There's a decentralized ledger that exists on everyone's computer that supports the network. So if you wanted to fake this degree or this title or something like that, you'd have to get a large majority of the network to also say, hey, this thing is fake. So if that that's why these assets are better than a traditional, just a token that exists in a centralized network controlled by a centralized validator, right? If I run a website that says, you know, Terry Beeman is a multi-billionaire, I'm the only person who controls that information. But if there's a decentralized ledger that represents, you know, what is in my bank account, then that is consensus among everyone. Well, the ledger, and, we and by the way, so we, don't, so we don't confuse things. The ledger you're talking about is the blockchain. Yes. And the NFT is, is now sitting on the blockchain is what you're saying, I think. Yes. Yes. And then, and that NFT, and, and this is another area of confusion for some of us, has something on it that itself cannot be copied or, 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 or fudged with, right? So there's, there's a, is it a serial number? Is it a, an identifier? What's the identifier? Yeah, David, what, how do you differentiate that? I, I mean, these assets, like they can be tracked. Again, there are what are called blockchain explorers where you can track all the assets as, and then verify that they sit in a certain wallet. And then a person can kind of prove ownership over that wallet or decide that, you know, they just hold it there without kind of uh, letting anybody know that they control it until they need to. But you know, and everybody who looks at that address can see this one address owns that asset and it's unique. And that's verifiable and provable, you know, on a mathematical basis and all that. So what you're doing is you're taking the NFT from uh, being a thing many of us are mostly thinking about it. I'm thinking about is how do you NFT something I've done since I'm a content creator? Um, and how do I, how do I profit <laughs> from that to uh, this broader business of the NFT as the authenticating token that will be sitting on a blockchain. No one can mess with it. And that's, that's in a sense, the authenticity. I think that's what you're all are basically saying. Yeah. Yes. And, and so there's a couple yeah. other important things. So, so first of all, you know, I, like I envision a future where all of these things, like I said, that you, that you um, were accurate to say, don't really have value, but I said, confer some value. 
Like if I walk into a room at a conference or an event and I don't know the three of you and I don't know the other hundred people there, but with augmented reality or some alert on my phone, I'm able to see that five other people in the event invested in a same early stage company and we're both series A investors in, right? Or that we all were our LPs in the same fund and our phones are automatically tracking our NFT wallets that track those <laughs> special you know, NFTs and notify us so that we're able to foster a connection that we wouldn't have otherwise found. Right. That's a very valuable thing to me. Right. To meet those people mm -hmm. that I otherwise might not. Have. Another thing now, stepping back again, um, I met this guy, one of the most incredible people I've met in my life, Hernando DeSoto. And he spent a lot of time. He's written a number of books. He's kind of a pioneer in helping uh, a lot of third world and developing countries around the world kind of improve their economies and help people out of poverty through focusing on uh, land titles and human rights that derive from that. And so that's kind of one of the most important things he points out in helping countries develop is having a very established and trusted record of property uh, ownership. Now, what's happened in a lot of like developing nations, unfortunately, is, you know, the control goes from one family to the next or from one controlling government to the next. And all of a sudden they scribble out uh, and cross out who owned what and the land ownership changes from a large group of people to a different group of people. And so I can tell you this, that like there are hundreds of millions, if not a, hand, a couple billion people around the world that would much rather be like sign up for a verifiable ownership in a decentralized way where it's not just governed by whichever controlling politicians happen to rule the country at that point in time. But how do you get the controlling politicians to agree to this? Because that's the other thing. Look, we all agree. I think most people would say blockchain, real thing. That's not an issue. But when you start getting into the next level of decentralizing some of this, there's obviously the issue that you're you're threatening, or it is, not you, it is threatening um, a standard way of doing things that there will be great resistance for. It's not like the internet, you know, I think of the internet and the internet sort of just evolved and it, it just became, you know, it became part of our lives. I was on the early side of that as a user and there was resistance, uh, but you couldn't resist it. It was a freight train, it was moving so fast and you would be left behind. This um, is a little, it's a little less intuitive, I think, uh, for the average person, not for you because you're deeply involved in it. So how does it, um, how do you get beyond that disrupting the centralized way of doing things when that's government? Unless you're talking about basically blowing up government and this centralized way of doing things won't exist because this is gonna be one world with one sort of authority. I know that's way out there, of, of a thought to have, but I, 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 I think it's a, it must be a discussion people are having. Yeah, absolutely. I, actually, a, a close friend of mine, uh, Gabriel Abed, who was uh, from Barbados and now out in uh, Abu Dhabi as the ambassador to the UAE, he kind of came up with this concept of, uh, or has been exploring the concept of a polity, which is, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but essentially it's rule by the people and like by a larger group of people. And it's kind of the next generation of democracy and what that looks like. And so, you know, I'm not advocating and saying that all centralized institutions and governments are going to be disrupted, but what we're going to see and what, what excites me about this whole, you know, decentralized uh, world is it's going to drive the centralized authorities a little bit more towards kind of being more, you know, this modern world that we're in. So we're going to see some aspects of government be a bit more decentralized and some small countries and nations are going to decide, well, you know what, this is actually, it would be better the same way that a handful of nations have decided they would rather have a US dollar peg because, you know, the dollar is the global reserve currency. And so a handful of small nations are going to decide, well, you know what, it'd be better for our economic future and, you know, for the benefit of all of our citizens and their rights to actually be tied to this, you know, ledger that happens to be supported by this country or another. And so I think, mm -hmm. yeah, even like a large nation, Hong Kong is on a what's essentially a US dollar peg, right? And a handful of other, you know, more important financial centers around the world. And so it won't be a surprise to me to see countries actually adopt that, especially when the next generation of politicians takes over that are as excited about, you know, disrupting their governments as Terry and a lot of the other people are about cryptocurrencies today. And go quickly back on what you were talking about, Herb, with like your work in journalism I, and how you could use, you know, this idea that David was talking about conferring value. 
I was talking to somebody who's working on an NFT project to help journalists, especially photojournalists, who often have issues because their work is used without their permission so much, but being able to create a blockchain NFT of their photograph, for example, so that if it's used without their permission, they're able to know about that and get paid accordingly for that. So if like their photo that they took in the Middle East uh, is used without their permission, there's a blockchain that's monitoring that and helping those people like confer their value in their their work because that's their their art and their value um yeah no i i was uh i i from a journalistic perspective uh i haven't given it any thought and i'm a former journalist so uh, <laughs> uh but i uh always have to put that disclosure out there uh but in terms of uh how it would i mean i'm just thinking out loud here because i, I come back to saying a guy like me who creates content you know i'm now thinking about it from my perspective and i think gee is there a way to profit from this. And I don't know that a, a writer can. I, 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 I may be wrong because, again, it's out of my world. Can a writer, well, profit, so you, can, can, can a writer or a content creator, what do you guys think? So, you know, this is what I love doing. And when I talk to people who come from different backgrounds, so just there have already been a couple of experimentations around, you know, uh, coming up with uh, something called Steemit and a couple of other platforms that have been to try to help creators and, you know, people generating content get rewarded on a, you know, article by article basis through micro payments of cryptocurrencies and all these different things. And now that led to tipping and micro tipping for certain articles and for tweets and different things. And even now, um, you know, in WhatsApp channels, I, I'm in a handful of WhatsApp and Telegram groups where people are able to tip each other when they put in other ideas that people, you know, find exciting or they share important like pieces of news or insights. So other than those kind of initial ways, I can also envision a world, where, you know, as we talk about funding uh, artists as they go and create certain things like for certain journalists and people who kind of leave the world of journalism, right, or leave certain worlds to then go and write something, right? If we think about, you know, the next uh, the next couple of years, uh, I could envision a way where certain celebrities and other celebrity journalists go out and they put out to the crowd that uh, and the crypto community or form a DAO around whether it's an autobiography or whether it's new content that they're writing and mm. give financial incentives to their community and also give them some kind of uh, ability to contribute to the direction of the content. So I know like the, for example, Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, he came up with something where he released one chapter at a time uh, and kind of invited his users to, invited his readers to come and participate and be a part of it as he slowly unfolded the whole story. Right? I can imagine coming up with a story and we've already actually seen some things like this uh, around comics and around some other content where people will sell NFTs that earn some value based on the future sales of the content that's generated. Yeah, oh, wow. so I think I think to your point, um, I think the DAO is definitely something we should touch on here because I think it's definitely going to create a paradigm shift in funding, right? So people are pooling their money together into massive treasuries so they can invest together in a decentralized manner in projects. And then there's also a governance structure that represents it. So the entire community that holds a stake in this treasury has vote in what they're doing with the treasury. So it's a way for people to um, to invest together. And by the nature of it being, you know, a group of people with capital, right? You know, a couple hundred thousand people and, you know, maybe a billion dollars, it's kind of like a self-marketing machine. And I think it really is disruptive in the venture capital space because in venture capital, I think, you know, you spend a lot of money on marketing. And to this end, uh, the DAO can actually be sort of like, a self-marketing machine. If you've got a hundred thousand people with money that's active and being deployed, and they're also really passionate about the project, I think that's something extremely disruptive and and worth noting. Do, do you guys see any sort of drawbacks or li or limitations or implications of some of this technology, and like where we could see kind of issues or case studies where we're seeing like some things come up? Yeah, I mean, there there are plenty and there's going to be, you know, I, I look at all this, it's important. I always remind people that this is all experimentation. You know, Bitcoin is 
a little bit like it's a store of value, a little bit like a currency, a little bit like a technology, and a, a bit of an experiment as well. You know, Ethereum, all these other layer one protocols are the same, a little bit more of an experiment, right? All the other things, all these new companies that are being built on it, they're all experiments and there are going to be risks around it. There's going to be some risks around custody and hacking that occurs. But, you know, I, I look at it all as kind of inevitable friction and that's sort of what's created the opportunity all along the way. I guess a lot of startups are experiments. Tesla was an experiment at one point uh, to see if the world wanted and could use uh, an advanced electric car like that and uh, see where it is today. Um, do you guys see this applying, being applied to like a metaverse now? Like it seems like that's been taking off with like Facebook announcing that that was going to be their focus. And how do you see this technology being applied into a metaverse or different metaverses that different people kind of create? Don't look at me. Or what do you think of the metaverse? What do I think of the metaverse? Yeah, or, or I'd be curious to hear first what you think, and then I'll chime in. <laughs> well, what I think of the metaverse is, uh, again, I go back to, you know, when I was reading about it, and then it was put in the web, th web 3.0 vernacular. I got, okay, I get it. I, I Again, I come back to what I, I said early on. I've learned that there's plenty of stuff that can seem out there, but it, it remains to be seen if it works. I mean, there are plenty of things that people thought would work that wouldn't work. If I'm still around at the point where we're meeting virtual, we're doing this, what we're doing right now, but some, maybe these are the glasses we're wearing. And uh, so they don't look so silly. And we're sort of meeting with one another, like we're in a room. If that's a part of it from the non-gaming part, I suspect there's going to be a segment for that. I, I, again, it's like, it's like crypto. I know people on both sides of it, but I know people who are just lining up. They want to be part of the, in, they want to be investors in anything meta related because you're talking 10 plus years down the road or so they believe. Uh, again, who am I to say it's not going to work? I've, I I don't know. You want, So you want to know what I think. I can sit here and take a strong opinion and say, yes, this is going to be the hottest thing. No, it's not. What I can say, and I'll go back to inter, internet 1.0. The minute I sat down, I mean the minute, the minute I sat at the computer in the newsroom and I think it was it was either Yahoo or Netscape. And my editor would say, hey, just fool around with this thing. And it didn't take me more than five seconds to say, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> and not even <laughs> understanding the full power of it at that point and mm -hmm. how it was going to transform my world for the better, but also transform my world for the worse, because it made my life as a journalist that much easier and that much better. But it also democratized the kind of things that I use that I that made me special. And suddenly getting SEC, for guys like me, getting SEC documents was always the hardest thing. Easiest thing to get right now, it's on my desktop. It was, so that kind of thing leveled the playing field for just um, researching companies, researching things in general, and researching anything and watching everybody realize they could be a voice. So I watched that evolve very quickly. I was a journalist pre-internet in San Francisco, post during the transition and post. I was one of the first mainstream journalists to jump to an online publication. It, it was kind of a big deal when I did it, when it was called online journalism. And that then transformed itself into journalism because suddenly deadlines didn't matter. And everyone went from this online journalism thing over here to that becoming journalism and where things went and, where, and how things evolved. It disrupted journalism. So where's that? What's that going to mean with the metaverse down the road? No idea. But I'm not going to sit here and say, mm -hmm. no, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Or, oh, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard of. I just know it's a thing people are working on and they're a lot smarter than I am. Huh. That's interesting. David, like speaking of what Herb just said, when you first opened up Netscape or Explorer and you tried the internet, I remember going into chat rooms for the first time when I was like 14 years old and it blew your mind that you can connect with people all over the world and you just got it right away. You just understood right away. There was most people like got it right away. There, it, it seems like this is a little bit more confusing where people are like still trying to figure out what it means or what the metaverse and how blockchain is going to apply to it and what it, and will it be special? But what would you say to people that are still skeptical on what that is? Yeah, I, I mean, I say it, it's always fun to think back on all of those things. And like, you know, I think back to, you know, being on AOL uh, and then AOL Instant Messenger and ICQ and all of these chat rooms. And, yeah. you know, I remember setting up some of my earliest websites when I was 12, 13 years old. And it was important to kind of get my hands dirty. And that's really what I encourage people to do now of like, not just sit back and kind of say, oh, this cryptocurrency stuff is too complicated, but to actually get their hands dirty. Do a 
you know, go through crypto 101 and 102 and 201 level mm. classes and like actually do a crypto transaction and then move that money, you know, off a centralized exchange and even with just small amounts of money to play around and kind of hold it themselves and realize what it's like to take custody of their uh, kind of cryptocurrency. And then, you know, as I think about what will happen in the metaverse and everything, when I was in Miami a couple of weeks ago and I was hanging out with my cousins, right, who are age six, seven, eight, they're meeting up with all of their friends in Roblox. And so that's where they're engaging already, like living in, you know, what's essentially a metaverse. When their friends come over and they're playing together physically in person, they run around the pool a little bit and they play in person mm -hmm. and then they both go into Roblox and they're either both sitting together looking at the same screen or on their two screens next to each other. Yeah. Right? So they're already tied to the metaverse. We spend eight to 10 hours a day, if not more on average behind our phones, probably more than that, including our laptops and other, and then televisions, right? So we're already mm -hmm. digitally tapped in. We're essentially digital cyborgs, except it's happening in two dimension, not just kind of being like fully engaged at all times, right? Someone pointed out to me, and actually this is kind of one of the interesting like reframes in my own perspective about how the most important or the most successful augmented reality device that exists today is the AirPod. And so mm -hmm. we think about augmented reality as our vision in front of us and that we're going to see this augmented reality world. Well, when we put our AirPods in, we're in augmented reality. We can talk to it and we can listen. We can listen to an audio book. We can have a phone mm -hmm. call. It's technology that's attached to us that all of a sudden connects us to all these different worlds that aren't you know, in our physical presence. And so we're already in that sense connected to augmented reality and connected to this kind of the metaverse of the internet that exists. So this hybrid over the next couple of years and the innovation that we're gonna see is really just tying in or spending more of our time in the visual context of you know, kind of living in that connected world. And, you know, another important thing, if you look at really with what's happened in the world in the last two years and through quarantines and other kind of uh, restrictions on travel and everything, really, we didn't see coming the just how quickly and omnipresent video conferencing would be. And, you know, through mm -hmm. the growth of Zoom and all these other things, the technology had been around for 10, 20 years before, right? And so it caught on because the events of the last couple of years, looking ahead, we might go through the same kind of thing where over a one or two year period, we go from not being able to imagine spending so much time in the metaverse to then having it be a ubiquitous thing that everybody is kind of engaging in classrooms and study and dating and travel yeah. and experiencing in the metaverse versus more so than in real life. Uh, I was just going to say, do you think it's something about like the naivety of youth that makes the adoption of some of these things? Like I, my niece, like talking about your what you had just mentioned, my niece comes home, she's seven years old, and it's seamless for her to meet her friends in a store on Roblox. And then she'll still have, she'll have her iPad open too, and her laptop, and essentially be in a metaverse with her friends, like FaceTiming with one of them while in Roblox with the others. And it was like, I would never have done anything like that. And she just gets it more than I do. And I wonder if it's something about just being open to these ideas because you didn't know anything else before that because you're only seven years old and this is all you've ever known that makes maybe, and the graphics aren't even good on Roblox, like they're terrible, uh, but they still, she'll be, they're, she's buying and transacting as well in this. Like I'll give her a hundred bucks of Roblox dollars and she'll go buy basically what are NFTs, like hats and clothes and things for her characters and cars and stuff within that world and loves doing it. Um, I just wondered, do you, do you think it's something that's like, there's no blockage there with her because that's just what they're used to? Completely. So I, I think, you know, the naivety of youth and the playfulness and the curiosity are an important thing for us to all learn from and try to emulate and realize that like, you know, and that's why I said, I seek out what people are excited about. I seek out uh, and try to maintain that curiosity myself. And I even a lot of times I'll, I'll use the line where I tell people I'm purposefully naive, right? Mm -hmm. To try to take the approach and, you know, go in and realize I might not know anything about it and just try to learn about, you know, why people are doing something and, you know, what I might take for granted otherwise and all of us might. I think really for the longest time, like the metaverse has really been here. I grew up on a computer since I was probably five years old. I had AOL when I was a kid and then I started playing online games probably around nine years old and I would go hang out in a voice chat server with my friends and we'd go play games together and you know there was no currency in the game it was literally just a server that you could connect to and you had your little avatar you were who you were and you'd play a game but we found ourselves just kind of hanging out a lot and I uh, uh, looking back, I find that really 
really interesting. And I, I find that this concept of the metaverse or hanging out in this virtual space has really been here for a while. But the paradigm shift that crypto brings to the metaverse, right, is, uh, you know, games like Fortnite or I think Roblox and I think like, you know, Counter-Strike Global Offensive. You can put money in, but you can't really get money out. It was never something that was a profitable endeavor other than streaming. But the implication of bringing crypto into this metaverse application that's been present for a while is that now it can actually be profitable to like live and exist and and to do business or whatever it might be in this virtual reality space. And I think that's why it's getting so much attention is that people are realizing like, oh, the centralized company isn't the only you know, benefactor here, like I can win and I can earn too. Yeah, exactly. And, and how would you say that the, the idea of like an augmented reality will enhance this? Um, I think the idea of an augmented reality will take things that exist in this virtual reality and apply them to layers that you can actually see and share with other people. I think wearables will probably become a big thing. And I know it seems maybe a little bit sci-fi and dystopian, but I could definitely see a time where I'm sitting here chatting with you guys and one of my collectibles is flying around in the background. And, you know, it looks so real that it's, you know, you wouldn't be able to really um, discern it from real life. And then also things like um, how Amazon has these, uh, you know, like cashierless stores where you can just walk up and and take things or maybe you know look at the price of something where where you can actually get data about the world around you um i think that's definitely an application of this uh augmented reality space yeah i love what i also love what Nate namdar uh, was saying earlier about how we're kind of already using it in augmented reality without even realizing it and we're kind of doing it now like sometimes we'll be in the middle of a conversation and on our phones to find out something about the person or uh looking at some, looking up something on instagram to pull up a memory or a, th a thought or an idea that we had to tell somebody that's in a current conversation the augmented reality is just speeding that up and making so that we're not going into another platform to do that and, and i've seen some really special things coming there like you know sort of the hybrid of where we are today with you know, Zoom and Riverside and all these other tools that we're using for video conferencing, but where, you know, we're able to kind of be together. And instead of it having us be, you know, multiple boxes on a screen or one person talking at a time, where we can have it be much more of a natural interaction that like, let's say the four of us go into an event together in a metaverse, or we go to a concert or a conference, and then Herb and I connect over something. I'm like, hey, let's go chat about this more. And I pair up with him and take him to a private room or just on a walk. And as we walk through, it's much more natural conversation that we're having and as we're walking maybe we run into uh, another friend of a, one of ours right and we get pulled in a different direction than we than we expected and so that's the kind of thing that happens today like and i i take a lot of walking meetings you know i love the serendipity that that creates um and so it doesn't happen when you're sitting on a zoom but it will it happens in real life and it will happen in the metaverse as well but will, will we be wearing the big goggles or will they have it down to something that is more realistic um, it'll be a mix, right? I mean, the same way I said with your AirPods, like walking around in AirPods, it could be the same thing, you know? And so, mm, sure. um, yeah, or, could, or like, I know, you know, even as of right now, Facebook has collaborated with Ray-Ban to basically make a pair of glasses that just look like this, that you can, uh, have a camera in and uh, provide information for you to see. Um, and I think that augmented reality will probably be adopted much faster and quicker than a virtual reality space. And you could kind of marry the two together. Yeah, I think I think the virtual reality will continue to be persistent in applications like gaming. And I think it's going to increasingly bring young people in. And, you know, I, while I do think it's good to go outside, I don't see anything wrong with people spending time in these metaverse experiences and on games. Honestly, a lot of my best friends in life I made through the internet and through gaming. And um, I honestly wouldn't be here speaking with you all today if it wasn't for my experiences on the internet that helped me build skills and um, helped guide my interests to um, photography and editing and then finance. Well, do you think that there's a way that both that you see a, a you see both areas of finance with crypto and traditional um, asset classes like hedge funds and in other investing in traditional equities and 
traditional currencies, finding a way to benefit each other. Like, is it possible for both of these things to live in peace? And can they both kind of assist each other and excel in both areas? It depends. It depends who you're talking to. It depends what type of a fund you're talking to, how the, how the, what the bias of that person or that fund is, and as things evolve. And that's why you have people mm. playing both sides of it, because nobody really knows. There are the people who are head, heads over heel, head over heels for all things crypto. Mm. Look, I, I wrote a piece the other day. It was an interesting piece. Mm. And it was interviewing a guy who started several fintech companies. And he's gone off and doing other things. And one of the things he's done, though, is become a big Bitcoin investor and specifically Bitcoin. That's where he's put his 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 bet. And the headline of my piece was was and it wasn't his words. It was my words. It was Bitcoin as a value investment question mark. And he looked at it from the perspective that the, he's looking over a 25 plus year time horizon, which sounds ludicrous, but that he's genuine. And in his view, over that period of time. There will be a lot of things that will happen. There will be regulations that come in that impede progress of or impede what you guys may be talking about now, certainly on the crypto side, uh, but and specifically on the on the coin side. But um, he wants to participate. He thinks the best thing to participate in is with the with the with the main the main coin, which is right now, which is Bitcoin. And he believes at some point in time, it's going to be worth a lot more money than it is today. But it was interesting because we could point out that he still had his he was he's diversified. And he's diversified one third of his portfolio is in Bitcoin, one third is in small cap stocks that he's an activist in, and one third is in very traditional big CPG and you know other uh, value type stocks that pay dividends. Just what you wouldn't expect. But that's the point. He's diversified. This isn't to me. It's not all or nothing for anything that's evolving. Uh, I understand there are people who have to do that, but they're concentrated. They really believe in it. That concerns me with people who invest in crypto as all in, because if they're all in and that's all they have, it's a big bet and it may pay off. Um, but I think a lot of people want to have a toe in it. Like, and this guy's more than a toe and I think he has his, his entire, both legs in it, but he has the rest of you know his life going in other directions. And I think that is what you're probably going to see as the funds try to figure it out. And I, gotta, I have to tell you, I mean, again, really smart people really smart people who disagree on this. And there, there is, there is, one's as intelligent as the next. And uh, they run often billions of dollars and they're just coming at it very differently. Uh, and then there's the view that I don't have time. My view, I don't have time to spend mm. on it and I can't do it. But so what the answer to your question is, I think that um, uh, you'll see a hybrid and you'll see a, you'll see a variety of people taking an approach. But until this is proven, until the coin side of crypto, and I think we always have to talk about it that way, don't we? The coin side of crypto is one side of it. The blockchain side is another side. You guys add the NFT, which I guess is in its own little sort of, you know, universe tied more to the blockchain. Um, everybody's got a different approach and they're playing it different ways. Uh, but it seems like everyone, many people want to have a piece of something because they just don't want to be left behind. Other people just say, no, ma, no, no. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Don't want to touch it. I'll let somebody else mm -hmm. uh, profit from that. And uh, and they seem to be very comfortable with that. Interesting. David, what do you think? Because you kind of worked on both sides of this. You worked, started out in this industry uh, at like traditional hedge funds and traditional investment houses. How do you see both worlds kind of colliding? I mean, really, like, yeah, having come from that world and helped a lot of people invest in the space, uh, start companies, get jobs in the space, all of this over the last now eight, nine years, you know, one of the things that excites me is everybody, when they get into crypto, they are kind of more excited about life and maybe because it's kind of the greatest non-zero sum game the world's ever seen, or at least it has been so far. And so everyone becomes more than whatever they were before. If they came from the hedge fund world, all of a sudden they have to understand, you know, venture uh, venture capital and early stage technology and regulation and economics. And if they come from, uh, you know, the technologist world, they have to understand trading and economics and regulation and all these different things. And so it definitely this kind of expansive mindset that people have when they get into this space is something that you know excites me a lot and I think um, has been a common experience for many others and again I always try to encourage kind of caution and prudence you know at the same time I do tell people they should have more than a toe in the space and you know it's somewhere between probably a, a foot and a leg or two uh, is the right way to kind of have exposure but to do that over a period of time and kind of then to have some direct exposure into the largest cryptocurrencies you know and a handful of smaller ones that they'd like to bet on some venture exposure where they're investing into companies in the space or into venture funds and then some kind of what i call like alpha 
where it's really investing into uh, funds or you know systems where they're able to do cross exchange arbitrage or now with the emergence of DeFi, you know, it's the first time that they're sort of what I consider crypto native alpha. And so there's ways to earn yield and stake and do interesting things while at the same time protecting the downside. And so, you know, the important thing I think is more and more crypto wealth is created, a lot of the participants in the space aren't going to take that wealth out and put it back into the traditional financial system. They're going to keep it in this crypto uh, world and kind of put it into crypto native protocols and try to do more and more with it over the coming years. Just to kind of wrap it up here, um, how, how do you think people could find more information on this space or what's the best way to go about it? And like, what would you suggest to people out there that um, are interested in getting involved? Yeah, so the, there's no shortage of information out there and willing uh, participants in the space that want to educate and help others you know, get up to speed on it. And so, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of content out there to listen to podcasts and to read about. And then also, you know, there are uh, different cryptocurrency conferences that take place in every major city around the world every couple months. Uh, so really, I encourage people to, you know, go and attend them. And, uh, and, and then, you know, another kind of novel way is, you know, there's a ton of innovation happening within Discord channels. That's kind of uh, between Discord and Telegram. Those are two of the best mediums for connecting with other people in the space and learning from others. And, and so there, there's no, no limit to the amount of content you can find. Herb, do you find this is something that you're excited to write about, or do you try to stay away from writing about these kinds of things? I'm excited to read your piece that you said you did yesterday. No, I did it about two weeks ago. It's called, if you go on my LinkedIn um, under Herb in the Street, you'll, you, if you go down there, you'll, it's called uh, Bitcoin is a Value uh, Play. Um, I was quoting um, Mike Alfred, who you might know, mm. um, who is uh, who's a pretty smart guy. The uh, No, for me, I, I don't, I, I can't literally get there because my energy is focused on individual companies. And I think it's really hard to do both. And it's just, you know, so professionally, it, it's where I am. But personally, it's hard enough to keep up on the companies I want to own. So I think you sometimes have to carve, carve out where your specialty is, knowing that you're possibly missing something and uh, on the broader side. And I've, you know, I've owned... Early on, I owned the GBTC and, uh, you know, wrote it up and sold it when I went to, I don't know if it was a 50% gain or whatever. And then I just moved on and uh, and I own, own something else, but uh, it's not something I can spend time on. I just have enough. I just don't have the bandwidth or the time to give it what I would need to give it to get a level of comfort, knowing that there are so many people I know who come to me and say, what do you think about this crypto and what do you think about this Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. And say, hey, you know, I not point them in another direction to somebody else who might have a, a more informed opinion. Yeah, that's a good point way of putting it. Terry, Terry said something interesting recently where he talked about how people refer to crypto and they think that you automatically mean that it's a currency. But the idea of crypto, Terry, you could probably say it better than I. Um, you know, would you want to expand on what you were you were saying there? Yeah, I was saying that that you know, cryptocurrency. I don't really like calling it that because i think it's more than that and i think of it more in the as you were saying her like blockchain application is where i find a lot of interest in and to to the point that was made earlier of like can the world of traditional finance and blockchain coexist and to david's point of like hey this is going to disrupt everything i think it's possible to see a future where stock trading is powered by some of these technologies and secured by this decentralized technology. That's kind of see where I see the uh, the colliding of worlds um, happening here, where it's you know it's a technology play to me. And when I'm evaluating cryptocurrencies, I kind of evaluate them how I how you know one might evaluate a company, and it's like, hey, like how many people are going to use this? Like you know, how much money can it generate? Um, yeah. You know. Like what, what is the use case? Like, what is the business here? Like, how does this actually make money? I appreciate your guys' time so much. And thank you for your feedback and insight on all of this stuff. And Herb, I, hopefully there's, I think there's a way that we can also combine the content creators like yourself to kind of create a space where we can either earn even more income or protect your IP, which I think is really important, you know, protecting all of the work that you do in content creation through showing that it's valid and it's yours and it's coming from yourself and it's not being stolen, I think is also an interesting way to do it as well. Hmm. Um, and David, looking, like you said, looking at the future and coming to this from a place of naivety is uh, I think the greatest way for us to kind of embrace 
what this is going to hold in the future. We'll let you guys get out of here. I appreciate you, Herb and David and Terry. Thanks sure. for spending some time and we'll, we'll cut yeah, up some you. really great stuff. Sure. With this. Thanks a lot. Hey, great. And, and great meeting you guys. Yeah. Take care.